I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Greg Sparkman, is a professor of social psychology who directs the Social Influence and Social Change Lab at Boston College. Using national surveys and field studies, his research focuses on harnessing the power of social influence, identity, moral reasoning, and beliefs to enhance the possibility of significant change. The findings can translate into large-scale motivational interventions in collaboration with nonprofit, public, and private organizations to address social problems relating to the environment, health, and social inequity. So Greg, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. So how did you become interested in social psychology in general and specifically how it relates to climate change? Way back when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was actually interested in clinical psychology driven largely by the desire to help people. And while learning about different kinds of social and environmental issues, became in awe of the scale of those issues. And so I wanted to do research that could speak to those kinds of issues and transition from clinical to social psychology generally. And my research on uh, climate-related topics kicked off when I was in graduate school. It was one of the main areas of study that I looked at. I felt like we really didn't have good answers for the kinds of questions that I felt like we needed to do something about. I didn't know how to motivate people to take action on climate change very well. Like I could have gone door to door and, and canvassed, but I just felt like I would not have been that persuasive. And there were people that I knew who were completely aware of climate change, had the financial means to do things differently, were liberal, etc., and still didn't do a lot of the things that I and they knew were pretty important for climate-related issues. And I frankly didn't know how to motivate them to do it. And so I felt like there was something fundamentally I didn't understand. And that is when I turned a lot of my research attention towards questions like that. How do we get people to take action on these large impending issues? In the interest of full disclosure, I am a retired clinical psychologist, and I also was a school psychologist. And I have to say, I have a lot of sympathy for, for your choice because I noticed particularly in the school psychology situation, I was working with children with serious behavioral issues. And more often than not, way more often than not, they came from a very difficult social environment at home. And what I was trying to do at, at the schools was a drop in the bucket. It really didn't seem to me to be addressing any of the root causes in an effective way. And so doing it in a larger scale social psychology mode makes a lot of sense. I also wanted to say that as a clinical psychologist, and I think I'm not alone in this, we usually don't make a whole lot of use of findings from academic psychology. There seems to be a huge divide between the two fields, but this seems to be an exception because we're not just talking about something to be used by clinical psychologists, but to be used by policymakers. And we're talking about huge social environmental issues, not necessarily specifically an individual issue, except as it may be relates to persuading people to engage in the larger issues. So my hat's off to you. I think it's a super important area and you're doing work that actually has the potential for creating change on the ground, not just in the ivory tower. That's the hope. So you, in your uh, articles that you sent to me, you mentioned that Americans tremendously underestimate popular support for fighting climate change. So tell us about that. That's really interesting because I think it's certainly one way to get discouraged is to think, what can I do? No, there's not enough real interest in addressing this, but it, that turns out to not be true. Right. So there's been polling for quite a while on a variety of 
climate issues from concern about climate change to policy support for things like a carbon tax or Green New Deal or 100% renewable energy mandate. And they are, I would say, overwhelmingly positive in that a supermajority of Americans support these policies. But when you ask people how popular do they think those things are, they underestimate that support by a great deal, often estimating these things as being just a minority of Americans who support these issues. So in our research, we did a empirical study on this, looking at just how much people underestimated support for ways to mitigate climate change. And what we found was that in a large representative sample of 6,000 Americans, enough so that we could sample every state and get a granular picture of the country, that basically the vast majority of Americans upwards of 70, sometimes 80% underestimate how popular these things are. And just by how much, it was enough that while these things are supported by a supermajority, that is about two thirds of Americans, people think it's the opposite, that it's only uh, about one third of Americans or 40%. So while supporters outnumber opponents two to one, the average American sees it as the other way around. And these misperceptions are not evenly divided from what uh, your research has shown people who already are on board with wanting to fight climate change are more accurate than people who or who, who listen to media al along those lines are more accurate than uh, people who listen mostly to conservative media which i guess has there's a vested interest in minimizing the support yeah i think an apt way to describe the differences is that the vast majority of people are wrong but some people are less wrong within that estimate right now there were actually 10 percent or so who were actually pretty on point but by and large, there wasn't any particular demographic that was accurate. The differences though, in terms of the degree to which people underestimated support for climate change, mitigation, or concern about climate change, fell as follows. People, generally speaking, who were liberal tended to underestimate things less. People who consumed media sources like NPR, for instance, tended to do a tiny bit better. When I say tiny bit too, it's, it's tricky because it's, instead of being 30% off, they're 20% off, for instance. And it's okay, that's definitely better, but it, and it's better than people watching Fox News, for instance. But there's two ways to interpret that. One is that those news sources are doing a great job at reducing this bias. The other way to see it is like maybe they're portraying still an inaccurate picture of the world, but it's just less inaccurate than the other news sources. Either of those could be a possibility, depending on how you want to interpret, how charitable maybe you want to be. But I think there's room for, for improvement for everybody is the short answer. So I guess you're saying that New Mexicans shouldn't be too proud that we're among the most accurate uh, states. Uh, our residents are among the most accurate in estimating these things. No, actually, I think you should be proud of that because it, it was down to about 15% for the folks from New Mexico that we surveyed and other states angling closer to 40%. So there was geographical variation too within our sample. And New Mexico really did come out pretty on top in terms of their estimate of the nation. And I think you, your, your findings also found that people are more willing to make personal change when they believe others are also willing to do something. So part of the problem with underestimating the support is that what can I do? Even if I join up with others, it's not going to make any difference. But if in fact, not only is there a large majority of people in favor of action, but there's actually also a large majority of people who would do so if everyone else did also. Exactly. So people conform to what they think others think. There's a just mountain of research about this phenomena of conformity to social norms. So to the extent people underestimate support for climate policies, they might 
have second thoughts about their own support. They might think, well, maybe I'm overreacting, or maybe this isn't as big of a deal as I think it is. It doesn't seem like other people are as worried as I am. And that is a big concern, especially for a problem where you have to coordinate on a solution, because you need to think that others are going to be there and also want these same kinds of goals for you to get excited to pursue them. So it really saps motivation to think that you're alone in this, when in fact, you're, again, in the super majority for a lot of these things. So that's one place where that's an issue. And the other, of course, is who is misperceiving this? Is it just the public? We think we have some data suggesting that policymakers have similar misperceptions as the public does, which again is a big concern if you live in a democracy that attempts to serve the will of the people, but they think that will of the people isn't supporting a carbon tax or things like a Green New Deal or 100% renewable energy mandate. So this really reminds me of the uh, social psychology research on the bystander effect, which of course that's a much more immediate situation where this is a much larger, uh, more abstract situation in a way. But with bystanders, I think they did this on the streets of New York, that if someone's lying in the street, people will just pass by. And of course, that gave New Yorkers a bad name. But if even one person stops to help, it suddenly a lot of people stop to help. That there's a kind of positive contagion effect that people really do seem to rely on the social expectation factor and whether they're willing to help. Yeah, part of that effect is that when we look at a problem, we're not actually sure it's a problem or if it should be intervened on. A lot of situations are more ambiguous than we give them credit. Climate change is like that in a way. So obviously from a scientific standpoint, we know that it's an existential threat to humanity. But if you're an individual, there's a lot of questions that loom. Should I stop what I'm doing right now and do something about climate change? Do I do it today? What do I do? For, with whom do I do it? It's like all of these questions are hard to answer. And should I treat it like an emergency? Should I really treat it like my house is on fire? Does it deserve that kind of a response? And when you look around and no one else is treating it like that, it becomes hard to see it that way. It becomes hard to see it as an existential threat. So people oftentimes have a hard time perceiving threats or they see them, but then they assume I must just be overreacting because no one else is treating it like a threat unless they see someone else do something. One of the classic studies on this was they would pump smoke into a room and they'd have people like filling out a survey while the smoke is being pumped into the room. Oh my. When people are by themselves and smoke is pumped into the room, they put the survey down and they go up and they go, hey, it looks like something's smoking. Maybe there's a building on fire. I don't know what's going on. It's meant to be slightly ambiguous, but still obviously dangerous seeming. And then conversely, if you have people not alone in the room, but with others in the room, they look around and they see no one else getting up and they interpret that inaction as a signal that maybe this isn't an emergency, maybe this is okay. And people just sit there, continue doing their survey for quite a while before someone gets up and says something or until they just call the study and say like, all right, it's time to go home. So in that situation, the other uh, participants are confederates of the uh, experiment or they're plant, planted there to not do anything? They've done it both ways. So you can have confederates, that, that being people who are in on the study and who are trained to sit there and do nothing. You can also do it with naive participants, just any, any old person sitting in the room filling out the survey. If, you're, if there's more than three, they tend to not get up for quite a bit longer and they look like the confederate sample where there's plants. And it's because, again, in those first few moments, people look around and they don't see anyone else getting up. And so they, just, they think, I guess I'm the only one who thinks this is a problem. And so they don't do anything. Yeah, I guess by definition, uh, only a small number of people are actual leaders. And if you're not a leader, then you're just waiting for someone else to lead or to initiate. Yeah, there's, there is some psychology on leadership as like a personality trait. But I do think that a lot of leaders in the real world appear to be 
conservative in their estimate of what to do about things like climate change. Maybe there is a group of people who are expertly willing to take the charge on things despite no one else taking action, but it doesn't seem like the political class or those people. So I don't know who these leaders are in that sense. It may not be because they're not leaders, it's just they're not leading in the right direction, in our view. The leading in the direction of preserving the economy, for instance, in the short term, rather than protecting the environment in the long term. And, and also there's political pressures to do that. Their funders want that, and most people are not that keenly attuned to long-term threats, as you mentioned before. Some people compare it to the lobster in the pot. If you start with cold water and gradually warm it, it won't jump out, try to jump out. Yeah, I think to speak to that too, in another recent data collection effort, one that's not published yet, we compare um, elected officials at the level of uh, city and municipality to citizenry to see how those two populations feel about climate issues. We find that they trail more conservatively would be the long and short of it. Like they're less eager to contemplate systems change than the public is by a large margin. And some of the more active narratives about we really need to both have policy changes and change lifestyles, for instance, like the public is ahead of their representatives by a good margin. So there's a miss, it seems. But don't maybe don't quote me on that until that work's published, but that's what it looks like for now, looking at the data. And that's true of other issues too, like gun control. I think something like 80% of Americans would like some uh, gun control measures, not uh, to dismantle the Second Amendment completely, of course, but just to do something more with more universal background checks and maybe delays on a waiting period before you can buy a gun or things like that. Something like 80%, including uh, the majority of conservatives, I believe. And yet change doesn't seem to happen. So it's, it does seem to be that you, you need, and I think you talk about this, you need both the top-down legislative efforts and also bottom-up popular action and that the two kind of are synergistic. That if the popular action was strong enough, that would eventually affect the legislative efforts too. Yeah, we're getting a little bit beyond the pure psychology of it, I think, into just political theorizing. But my hunch is that both efforts are valuable in creating social change. And there is like a give and take to both. Elected officials, to an extent, are anticipating what their citizenry want. The citizenry, to an extent, are trying to anticipate what their political options are. So there's a give and take on both sides. Yeah, and I think that you've you've found that when people are more willing to do what they can on the individual level, that actually does affect their support for legislative efforts too. That it's not one versus the other, they tend to go together. Yeah, in a related line of work, we look at how exactly is it that sustainable behavior relates to climate policy support? Some have posited that sustainable behavior just writ large entirely is a manufactured alternative to policy change, that it was decided so by large oil companies, et cetera. And a lot of this theorizing is that it's purely a distraction, like that sustainable behavior is designed just to be a distraction from climate policy support. But to an extent, that's an empirical question. Is it a distraction? Do people actually get distracted? And if people undergo different sustainable behaviors, does that make them less willing to support climate policy as a result or have no change, for instance? So we looked at this in a couple studies, trying to understand that relationship. And what we found was that it was pretty rare that you could get any kind of a negative effect from sustainable behavior on climate policy support. So when people reflect on the sustainable behaviors that they do, for instance, it had to be very narrow context in which you might see what we call negative spillover or active 
action in one case leads to less support or less action in another. And we saw that in, under the following circumstances. People had to, it had to be a costly policy. The costs had to be framed as falling on you as the individual. And when you reflected on your sustainable behavior, did it do so in a way that was void of thinking about why you did them? To the extent that people thought about they take those actions because they care about this issue or because it's the kind of person they want to be or anything bigger than purely, oh, yes, I do that. When people have any of those kinds of reflections, the effect goes away. In fact, in a study, we found that when people reflect on why they do these things, now it ties into their identity and sense of meaning, it actually increases their policy support, even when it's a costly policy, even when those costs fall on the individual. I should also say, too, that we had a hard time replicating the negative effect. We had a couple trials and we didn't get consistent results exactly between the two. So it might be a small and noisy, not very consistent effect, even in the worst case scenario. And again, in that worst case scenario, if people reflect on why they do these things, that it can actually increase their policy support. And of course, a lot depends on the, the, the feeling or, or belief or um, evidence, let's say, that everyone is going to be contributing. It's not just me. And I think that's one reason why people might be waiting for a top-down approach, because the top-down approach would ensure that, it's, that the sacrifice is spread out. Yeah. So for climate change and similar problems, there is, it's not a problem that any person can single-handedly solve. And it is a problem that we need a sense of collective efficacy. We need to feel like as a whole, we're able to do this. And in fact, when you poll people, if you ask people how willing you to go without this or adjust your behavior this way or something like that, people will give you one answer. But if you ask them, if everyone was doing this, would you be willing to do it too? They say, yes. Like the, the answer bumps up by a large margin. No one wants to be taken advantage of. No one wants to be a sucker. No one wants to be the only person contributing to the benefit of society alone. And when I say no one, I suppose I'm actually exaggerating because plenty of people do it despite it perhaps seeming like a minority of people doing it. Tons of people, in fact, do that. But I don't think they like the notion that they feel that they're going it alone despite, despite others' inaction. I think they would love it even more if people chipped in. I, I was wondering, it seems like it's really hard to address a long-term problem like climate change, but you've pointed out that it's difficult even at the individual level to work on something that's long-term, like for instance, long-term health threats. It's really difficult to get people to stop smoking by just simply telling them, this is going to create long-term health problems for you. That's not a very effective strategy for getting people to stop smoking. And they, frankly, there aren't that many effective strategies in July. It's such a difficult problem. But they also with health, let's say with eating a healthy diet, it seems that the, we're not really designed or wired as humans, at least most of us, to be motivated by that. Yeah, there's a series of compounded things that make climate change a difficult problem to solve. So as a kind of short list to run down, one of the issues is that it requires delayed gratification, like you're doing something now for the future. It requires you to be pro-social. You have to do something perhaps with personal cost for collective benefits. So it's a collective action problem, which means that you have to anticipate if others are going to chip in too. And if they don't, then you might, like I said, feel like you're being a sucker or being taken advantage of. So there's a free rider problem there. It is a kind of problem where you take action, but there's no immediate consequence, right? So not just that it's long-term, but it's hard to learn what's good. As you do these behaviors, the emissions are like behind the scenes in a lot of cases. And I think that's why you see fixation on things like recycling, because at least you can see it. Even though it's not, it's like one of the smallest kind of pieces of the puzzle, it, it's still an important piece of the puzzle, but it's one where I think it's at least one we interact with in a tangible daily way. Whereas flying, 
for the most part, that stuff looks invisible to you, even though it's one of the highest emitting things an individual could do, short of going to space maybe or something. So I think that there's a lot of ways in which the problem is difficult from a psychological standpoint. And then add to the fact that historically the norms have been not good, meaning you have to go against the grain of what most people do. And you're doing that despite the other kind of cognitive hurdles I mentioned before of complexity and the fact that the problem is not in the here and the now and it feels uncertain, et cetera. And that's a pretty tough recipe. The smoking example at least wasn't necessarily a collective struggle, although considering secondhand smoke, I guess it was. But if you look at how they solved that one, you actually have some clues maybe about what you would do about something like climate change. So in that case, there was informational efforts and that could be part of the solution, but it's rarely a complete solution to complex problems like that. Instead, what you had was like restructuring of social norms in society. So they were like, you know what? All these images and media about people smoking, we're going to get rid of that. And they were like, and you know what? We're going to make it so that in public places that are highly visible, no more smoking. And these things often were done for health purposes, although except for media was done intentionally with the desire to not have this seem like the norm because that's not useful. So really, we should be following suit with climate change. We should be like restructuring media to put forward better examples of people's behavior, et cetera. And, and we do a lot of research on the influence of norms because it's one of the few solutions that can speak to problems that are that hard. So in, another way to put it is that you want smoking to seem less cool. And by analogy, you want behaviors that pr- lead to climate change to be uncool. Or to, and to do the opposite, to be cool. But I, I think the positive is, it seems to be more effective than the negative, the positive image. Yeah. So from an intervention standpoint, if you were to come in and tell people, hey, all these things you're doing are bad, that would be tough because people get the impression that these things are the norm in society and you are just some minority asking me to do this or berating me for doing this. And I really don't have to listen to you. I can just marginalize you because they understand that the predominant norm is one where a lot of these behaviors are acceptable. Even in cases like food waste, I think, things that like people probably feel bad, I still think that going at people and yelling at them until it feels like you are a clear majority doing, that's a hard strategy to use. But I think that, so a lot of the interventions we work on are norm interventions where we talk about what we call dynamic norm information. We share that norms are changing over time. So even though this isn't the norm right now, we, by telling you it's changing, people can envision a future world and where that norm is different. And people actually will conform to that picture of the future world, even though it's not here yet, which is very beneficial for climate change. Yeah, we're going to get back to that in just a second about the successful interventions. But before we do that, I just wanted to point out which some of these behaviors that you talk about as being the norm are, are not just normal, but very normal. So things like flying, driving alone, eating meat, uh, family planning, leaving, not turning off the lights. There are all kinds of things that people do just as a total habit. And not only they have it, but I think there's pretty strong convictions by a lot of people that, for instance, with meat, people, humans have eaten meat for millions of years. And how can you expect that to change? That's a, that sort of thing. Or flying. I have to visit my family members who are now spread out across the country or even across the world. And there's no, not really, a, it's not really a choice that I'd be willing to change that much. Yeah, I think within the kind of social spheres that we live in, these things just seem like commonplace or essential, maybe in part because they are so commonplace. So right, these things are very, yeah, as you said, not just normal, but they're often celebrated as part of holidays. 
It's Turkey is the center of the Norman Rockwell painting of Thanksgiving, right? There's so many ways in which these things are embedded deeply into our culture. And those are parts of the challenge. I will say though, that that's how we experience it, but it's easy to, maybe not easy, but it's possible to snap yourself out of that perception too. Once you realize that half of Americans virtually never fly and that only a third do so regularly, and that only 10% of the world does ever, like you start realizing like, oh, it's normal for super privileged folks. Like it starts, you know what I mean? It, it starts dawning on you. And the same thing, I think there's a recent study on meat consumption, which showed that like the majority of meat's eaten by like a fraction of people, even in the US where we eat a lot of, I think beef specifically, there's like a handful, or not a handful, but there's a, a chunk of people who are disproportionately responsible for beef consumption in the US. And so there's a, and you can talk about this from an emission standpoint, not for any given behavior, but if you look at the distribution of emissions, like the kind of global wealthiest 10% of folks, not necessarily based defense, but it's, it's basically like middle class and above in the United States and Canada and Australia and the very elite classes up in the rest of the world account for half of all global emissions, right? So that that is the audience that from a lifestyle standpoint, at least should consider cutting back. But this is probably one of the strategies that doesn't work, right? So think about all those poor people not getting to do behaviors that promote climate change. Shouldn't you be more like the people that are poorer than you? I don't think that that's probably not going to work very well. Yeah. I think that the idea there is to make something seem unnormal, to highlight for folks like what you're doing is unique to this point in time. Even the majority of like Americans in the 60s were not per se like going beyond necessarily certain sustainability limits. So it's really just here, just now, just fairly privileged folks in, in that sense, right, who are exceeding the planetary boundary of what we can do. I'm trying to make something that seems normal seem not normal, but I think you're right that whenever the message comes back to you should go without, it seems like pretty terrible. And I think that there's it's a dual edged sword, I think, but it's mostly, I would say that I'm sharing this not as a approach to persuade so much as like a folks who really like to think about climate change as a problem. Like how do we, how might we want to change our thoughts about it? There's some ways to make all these things seem a little less normal if you want to, but I wouldn't go up to somebody and try to expound it on them. <laughs> if that makes sense and hope that they, like a stranger and just hope that's like going to be the way that they see it from then on out. No. Yeah. You're not going to want to say really, you really ought to live your life as if you have much less money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, this is a rewinding a little bit, but with, with individual change, people are more, more apt to care about their behavior if they're able to really take the long term to account. And I'm wondering if it's the same kind of person who can look at their own, let's say, health issues long term, also can look at climate change long term. Do, do, do those go together? Is it, is it partly a, either personality or social emotional development or whatever you want to call it? But is it the same people in both cases who are willing to address long term threats? There is research. I'm familiar with this, but I haven't done it. But in that work, there's research on long termism as a set of values. And so there are correlations between long-termism for some say climate and having a less sort of time discounting for the self or, or better being able to delay gratification for the self and do things. So you do see a pattern where these things do correlate though people vary in them independently too. So some people are really good about long-term health things for themselves, but don't do the same thing for others or you know what I mean, or, or social issues uh, like climate change that affects people beyond themselves. And other people 
tend to have a strong long-termism for climate issues, but don't dive as deeply on the personal ones, even though there might be benefits to the self, especially if they run contrary to the benefits for climate, right? Because you could maximize self-benefits for like diminishing returns with like greater kind of climate impacts. And so some people don't do that. So we were starting to talk about what are the best ways to try to influence people to change. So before we get into that, let's talk about the ways, more about the ways not to. So I think we talked about guilt trips is probably not uh, the way to go. Pointing out what people are doing wrong is not the way to go. Trying to get people to act as if they have less money is not the way to go. What, what are some of the more common mistakes, would you say, that uh, people make in trying to influence each other? Yeah. And I think that the tricky part about this is that guilt trips are not the way to go not without exception. It's like, it depends. So to the extent that you can use sticks instead of carrots is usually only the case, like I said, if you're like in the majority, there's clear norms established about this and someone's definitely out of line. If you're in that kind of a situation, like it might be appropriate to use sticks instead of carrots. But I think for a lot of climate issues, we're not really there. If you see someone littering, you can go yell at them. That is where we are for littering. You can do that one but not for eating meat or something, right? That's not at all where we are. Or someone lights up a cigarette on a bus, let's say. Yeah, totally fine, right? So there, there are certain issues where we're there and other issues where we're not there yet. And when you're in a case where you're not there yet, people tend to not concede. Like I said, they would prefer to marginalize you and dislike your cause. So that means that you have to be creative with the different approaches you can use and try to build up to a point where you have more social backing for the cause maybe before you try thinking about shunning or using guilt or things like that. Yeah. Another uh, example you use is that it doesn't work very well if the person doing the preaching seems like a hypocrite. And I know that Al Gore, he produced the movie An Inconvenient Truth, but then people pointed out he's flying all over the place. He lives in an enormous mansion. How can he be possibly preach even though he was using carbon mitigation credits. What do you, I forget what you call it, but... Yeah, he's using carbon offsets. Yeah, car carbon offsets. But even, of course, people were on the other side motivated to discredit him, you know, even though he was really among the first, I think, to really make a huge impact in terms of a widespread message. People have been talking about this since, I think, what, the 70s or something like that? But and I think that was the first really big effort. So, and you're right. So some of the work that we looked at on hypocrisy, we wanted to know, you know, to what extent should advocates for climate change walk the walk? And there'd been some research suggesting this was the case. They had found that people advocating for folks to change lifestyle behaviors really ought to do those same lifestyle behaviors themselves. And in fact, in a research where people go door to door canvassing for solar, for instance, if the canvasser themselves has solar, it goes better, uh, which should not be a shocker probably. And we find this is not just true of lifestyle, but even people should walk the walk in terms of lifestyle when they're advocating for policies. The target audience, seeing that individual, rates them as more credible when they take lifestyle action. And they're more likely to believe the policy recommendations and have their opinions swayed by that person more when they live a more sustainable lifestyle. And we wanted to understand a trade-off because it's also possible that you could fall victim to something called do-good or derogation though. When people do really well at things, we sometimes don't like them. When other people engage in particularly moralized behaviors that we don't do, 
we can feel defensive and we can anticipate reproach or they don't like us. And when that happens, we tend to want to discredit that person and then we feel better about ourselves or maybe discredit their cause. People like to see themselves in a positive light and they don't want to encounter information that makes them feel negative about themselves. So they're motivated to maintain that positive self-view all the time. So if somebody seems holier than thou, it triggers this defensiveness in us. Even if they don't say anything per se that's holier than thou, but just like they just do a thing that we don't do, we can feel defensive. That's enough to set that off. And so we were curious how to balance these two things we had seen, that people who are hypocrites are not effective, but people who are exemplary sometimes make us feel defensive and then we don't like their cause either. And it turns out that there maybe is a sweet spot considering those two tensions. And we found that like advocates who were some of the most efficient, like in the top, say, 5% of energy efficiency for homes and who made efforts to drastically reduce meat consumption and avoid flying when possible, et cetera, were much more persuasive than those who were in the bottom half of efficiency for homes, flew whenever they pleased and ate whatever diet they wanted, et cetera. And we found that for people who were exceedingly better, like they were in the top 1% of all homes, there was a diminishing return where they weren't performing even better. In fact, they were starting to trend worse a little bit and you're starting to get that defensiveness coming out of people. It wasn't because people saw them as less credible though. They just didn't identify with them as much and tended to just dislike them. So there's a trade-off where if you embody the things that you care about entirely, like to a T, then you might be harder to be identified with. Someone sees you just unrelatable and then you might not be persuasive again. So there's a tension. It seems like the best place to be is just like a few steps ahead of whatever your target audience is. So I'm better off saying, okay, I'm reducing my meat consumption. I only eat it on special occasions. I I bicycle a lot of the time, but I still own a car. Fly when it's to a destination, when it's really important to me, rather than I've given up my car, I've given up all meat, I've given up my large house for a small one. (laughs) It probably, but it might depend who you're talking to, right? If I'm talking to you, maybe it makes sense for me to say, oh, I haven't flown since 2010. Maybe, because there's a way in which it's like, oh, I can imagine this. I'm not wholly unrelatable. Uh, a family member who doesn't really do much of anything with climate change, like you're not, that makes no sense, right? You don't disclose those things as much. They're not going to be as persuasive. They're just going to be like wholly unrelatable. So I think the idea is probably being a couple, whatever, steps ahead of a particular issue for a particular person. But I think that's hard. We don't always know where people are. One, one strategy that I think is interesting, but we haven't tested this yet, but it makes sense to me is, do as much as you find motivating to do and they're able to do given your circumstances of course and rein in how much you share pending where other people are at so you don't need to say everything that you do you probably shouldn't because then you would just be going on and on about it and so instead you might just share like a handful of things that are slight improvements on something someone else does the other trick to make that land even better of course is not just lead with things you do that are slightly better than somebody that doesn't work either frankly that'll still make folks defensive, even if it's a minor gap between what you do and what they do. Instead, people really ought to use affirmation. So if you want somebody to be receptive to the possibility that they could improve on something, people tend to delicately balance their self-worth on whatever topics being discussed at the moment. So rather than have that being the only pillar their self-worth is on and then telling them that's not good, you want to distribute it across other things they care about and value for that moment. So reminding people that they're good at two other things 
makes them more willing to see some other aspect as being not ideal. People more open to constructive criticism at that point. It's interesting how much rests on helping people with their self-esteem that around these kind of things that feeling good is is a, a prerequisite almost for doing even more. Earlier, you, I think, started to allude to some of the more important successful strategies, and one of them is appealing to norms that are changing rather than as they are now. And then the second one, which is, I think, um, quite related, is encouraging people to think of themselves as joining a, a cause, that there's a shared goal, and they can feel something, they can feel good about that they're getting on board something. And so it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not it's the majority of people already because you're joining something that's important. Yeah, there's a few things about when you learn that something's increasing over time that makes it easy. So I think first, just to back up, when people think about how norms work, they think of peer pressure. We do things because we feel pressured by other people to do them or because we want to be liked by other people. That's part of the story for sure. But another part that's just as big and sometimes bigger is that we conform because we think it's probably a good idea or maybe it, it shifts our perception of what's enjoyable or just pleasant. So it's not all peer pressure, but sometimes when you look around, you see everyone behaving the same way. You think, oh, I guess that's effective. Maybe that's fun, or maybe that's tasty. Maybe that's enjoyable. Like you just give it positive attributions of all kinds of things. You, you say, it's gotta be the norm for some reason. Why are all these people doing this? And so you fill in with a bunch of positive qualities that could explain why they do it. So from that lens, there's a lot of actually carrots rather than sticks within social influence and conformity to norms, because it's not do this or else we won't like you, it's look how great this is. Basically, that's what is being said when you sometimes see a lot of people doing something. So for behaviors though that aren't the norm, the question is how do you leverage all of that? How do you signal that this thing could be good in all of these possible ways and enjoyable, et cetera, when it's not yet the predominant thing? And the answer that we came up with is that you portray it as a trend that's increasing over time. So there's lots of things that aren't the norm yet, but are increasing over time. And highlighting those trends, it turns out, can signal a lot of those positive things you want to signal to people about a behavior. So we, we talked a lot about how to give people critical information, but like a lot of climate things don't have to be seen as sacrifice at all, really. There's a lot of upshots to them. I've been using an e-bike for a year now, and it is magical. Like I just enjoy it a lot. And I don't really feel like it's a per se a sacrifice. I think if you have really bad infrastructure, it probably would feel more like a sacrifice because you'd be like weaving in out of cars or something. But if you have a trail nearby, e-bikes are amazing. You still get there fast. And actually for my commute, I'm most, mostly with cars, I'd say. And if there's traffic, I'm probably going a little faster than they are because there's usually not traffic for bikes. And it's a refreshing start for my day, et cetera. So there's, I think a lot of things can be framed in, in positive light. You don't need to frame it as like sacrifice because the future of the world depends on it, although that could be part of your calculus. But I think it's, there's actually a lot of benefits to these things. Same thing with improving diet, improving other things. The other benefit of talking about changes in norms over time is that it helps convey that change is possible for the self. So when we see many people changing, it starts seeming like maybe I can change too. And these are doubts that people reasonably have. When you see neighbors, for instance, install solar, you go, oh, like they went from not having solar like I did to having it like maybe I'm thinking about. And it just makes it seem a lot more possible and doable when you see other people change. 
And there is, in fact, an effect where when solar is installed in neighborhoods, it tends to actually spread like a contagion, right? And if it's street facing, it tends to spread more than homes for which the sunny side of the house is the backyard side, where they put them on that side. They don't tend to spread quite as much when that's the case. Because people don't notice them. Yeah, if I was like a city planner and or a mayor or something, and I was in charge of a solar fund, I would start by putting people at like popular corners that are like highly visible. Those would be the first people I give subsidies to because you know it's going to like seed the neighborhood better in that case. Yeah, I think you're making a good point that uh, social influence can only work if people see what the other people are doing. So if the behavior is a very private behavior, that's much more difficult to influence. That's right. And we have some studies looking at that right now, actually, they're ongoing. We look at when people, for instance, buy community solar, regular solar, you can see on rooftops, community solar, people buy these subscriptions to a local solar farm. You have no idea that somebody has that. So it's actually really important that you like put out a yard sign, for instance, or put a sign in your window or do something because no one will know. And it's really limiting the amount of impact you can have if you don't advertise it to other people. By the way, everyone listening to this should definitely just look up community solar because there's a good chance that it's cheaper than whatever your energy mix is now. There's, there's like almost no reason to do it. Like you'll save 20 or 30 bucks a month probably and be getting solar energy instead. It's, it's pretty amazing. And you don't, have to, you don't have to actually put the install on your own roof. It's just something people don't know about yet. And it is increasing over time. So I can accurately give you a dynamic norm that these things are taking off and you should probably look into it. Yeah, New Mexico, of course, is a leader in, in solar energy. We have so much sunshine, it's, it's crazy. So I, I think even if without any subsidies, it's at least 25, 30% cheaper over the long term than getting your electricity from the electric company. So that, that, should, that should be a pretty easy sell because that's uh, definitely for the individual benefit. It's just, again, it's a long-term thing. You, you, you start saving money after the 10, 15 years, not at the beginning. One of the perks of community solar is that it's like psychologically a wise infrastructure and that there's this low buy-in you get to try it and see if it works like you think it does you don't need to there's a lot there's a lot fewer unknowns because you're not adding something to your physical house you don't have to ask all those questions even though for most time those things are fine but still i think it looms large people is this going to be bad for my home so it allows you to buy in as much as you want or as little as you want and still get a lot of the benefits i'm wondering if you want to say something in particular about meat consumption which is an aspect of fighting climate change because there's so much land being cleared for beef cattle and of course you also have the, the methane emissions from cows themselves and there's all kinds of reasons why it's among the top reasons for climate change and yet that seems to be one of the more difficult things to change it is changing and there's more plant-based products than ever before and in certain small locations like particular cities it's becoming quite common but nationally, though, it seems like it's pretty slow. And what, what are you finding is most effective for persuading people to eat less meat? Yeah, I will say, too, for context, that in some ways, there's already been some improvement. It's just been a little, we haven't thought about it as improvement. And that, that's been the shift from beef to chicken in like US diet in the last 40 years. Like that shift has been beneficial for climate purposes, because chicken has a much smaller impact than beef does. Both, though, have a much bigger impact than like a plant-based protein like beans or an impossible burger or whatever your fancy is. So yeah, getting people to shift from poultry to plant-based proteins would be very useful uh, from a climate standpoint. It's like for some people about as big as their transportation. Like it's like a, it's like a pretty big wedge of emissions. And it's one that it's not quite an infrastructure problem. It's really just the lifestyle is where it is. And we're just like hoping people start making that change really from a climate goal standpoint. You can't just pass a law about it, really. It doesn't quite work that way. Unless you really want to price people out of meat, but I don't think anyone's talking about that because that seems 
unfortunate in some ways. Although we do a crazy amount of subsidies for it. So if those subsidies went to foods with lower impacts, that'd be nice, I think. From an intervention standpoint, we have seen the dynamic norm approach be effective at encouraging people to eat less meat. So when people learn that there's been a decline in meat consumption, and we were doing this at a time point when this was actually more the case. So around 2009 to like 2012, there was a notable dip in meat consumption. And so we were curious if advertising that would excite people to eat less meat. And despite the fact that meat consumption is the norm, the fact that there was some decline in it made people uh, more excited and more willing to eat less meat in actual live field studies and cafes and stuff. So we, we saw that there was a dip. There's another process that we've been looking at too, which is using defaults. So in, in some research, we find that when you advertise what's available that day, if you say, here's the dish, but if you wanted a meat version of it, I guess you could get that on request. Like you, you add like a small barrier to indicate like most of the time people get this, but if you really wanted to, I guess we could give you this one. Just let us know. That also has a pretty dramatic cut in how much people opt for the meat option. I think one of your studies talked about putting a note on the menu and preferably as something that looked like a post-it note so that it was more, more noticeable. Yes, we had some studies where we collaborated with restaurants. It's tough in those contexts because there's so many things going on. So we, one hurdle we found in those cases is that in some of the early studies, we had people fill out a survey while they waited in line. And there we saw pretty dramatic results. We saw like doubling of the vegetarian offers ordered from 17 to 34% when we added, or when in that survey, people saw that there was a decline in meat consumption and they thought about it. But you can't give everyone surveys while they wait for food in the real world. And trying to put these signs in places like a menu is like the next best thing when they're at the point of decision making. But it turns out that in that context, you're competing, obviously, for attention from just trying to figure out what food to order. And maybe you're talking with other people and the restaurant ambiance generally. The percent of people who actually read that note goes down. We did some research on like, how do you make sure that people actually notice the note? And yeah, having it look like a sticky note in the corner was one of the most effective ways, in, pa in part because that communicates like you're supposed to read this first is like what that says when there's like a sticky note in the corner of a thing. And in those studies, we saw that this is highly scalable. It's not hard for restaurants to adjust their menu and add a tiny note being like, hey, we've noticed that some of our plant-based options are becoming more popular over time. So from a implementation standpoint, very easy. The benefits were more meager in that study because only a fraction of people saw this kind of a note. We think this approach can be improved on though because one other thing we noticed for instance, was that when people saw that note, sometimes they inferred it must just be vegetarians doing this. But that's a norm about people who are unlike you. And for norms to work, you have to think that they're about people who are at least somewhat like you. So in another version of it, we said, our customers, including non-vegetarians, are changing. <laughs> so we spelled it out for people that it wasn't vegetarian. And then we saw what seemed like better effects in that scenario. You know, a moment ago, you mentioned about subsidies to the meat industry. I'm wondering if... Would it make a big difference for more people to know that? Maybe. It's interesting. There's, in some cases, there's opposition to policies because people are like, we should let the market decide. And you're like, you know, we're not letting the market decide about meat at all, right? We're making this stuff dirt cheap, artificially so. So to the extent that, you know, you have libertarian values, you should feel like meat's cheating, basically, in this game. So yeah, I think to an extent, it would make a difference for some folks. And I think also just to know the stuff you subsidize is the stuff people will eat, right? If you make some food cheaper than other food, people will gravitate towards it. And right now we're not subsidizing fresh produce 
fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. We're not subsidizing whole grains. We're just subsidizing meat, mostly through subsidies to corn feed for meat. So we're telling people we want you to eat corn in products. So corn syrup, corn starch, and we want you to eat the things that eat that, which include meat. So that seems like a terrible standpoint from like a dietary or environmental standpoint, like just to have your diet be like corn sugar and high fructose corn syrup, corn starch and other products and meat. That's maybe it's not a shocker that the U.S. is is doing a little worse for life expectancy when that those are our subsidies and doing worse globally from an emission standpoint, because again, those are our subsidies. Yeah, we can imagine totally the food bill has been notoriously difficult for people to change, I think, in the United States for a long time, but still a really important goal that we should keep on the agenda. So I'm wondering how much all this relates to trying to increase support for a carbon tax. Now, carbon tax has the advantage of spreading out the pain, so to speak, and creating incentives for people to spend their money in one way rather than the other. It's a really good evening kind of strategy. Is that something that you can use these same social change strategies for? Yeah. And first, just to clarify, too, there's a whole world of different kinds of carbon taxes. I think the one that a lot of folks are angling for would be a redistributive carbon tax. So the idea is certain goods that harm the environment, harm our communities, and harm the world more generally cost more. And it's not the goods that actually cost more, it's the production of those goods. So the companies making them are given an incentive to make them in a more carbon-friendly way. And then to an extent, those costs are passed on to the consumer if the manufacturer fails to be able to make that good in a lower emissions way. And then the money raised from that is redistributed to all Americans. So this way, you don't actually end up paying net more. The money comes in from things that are particularly harmful. It gets redistributed to all Americans who can afford everything they still need. And just what happens is like things with a smaller environmental footprint become relatively more affordable and things with a higher environmental footprint become a bit more expensive, perhaps. Again, they only become more expensive if the company fails to improve upon the way the thing is manufactured. But right now they have a little incentive to do it. So we could probably improve the efficiency of a lot of goods just from that. So for instance, like there's different ways of raising beef, some of which have higher emissions than others. And if you knew that if you were someone in the cattle business, you would have suddenly a huge incentive to figure out the low emissions way of making beef and, and to switch to those methods if possible. So I'm wondering the principles of social change that you've been studying, they dovetail really well with pro-social kind of values, but I would think the techniques would work also for people who have antisocial values. If you were to persuade them that more and more people are realizing that climate change is a hoax, for instance, and they're getting aboard fighting these liberals, which is, I think, is, is in fact used quite extensively, that kind of strategy. Yeah, yes. Oh, and first, let me back up to and say that a lot of things I mentioned specifically, we did apply to carbon tax. In one study, we looked at dynamic norms about Americans being angry about government inaction, and we saw policy support for things like a carbon tax increase when people learned that more and more Americans are upset about inaction. In the studies on spillover, where we ask people to reflect on their sustainable behaviors, we examined how reflecting on sustainable behaviors might increase support for a carbon tax and saw that it did when people reflected on how those behaviors connected to their values and identity. And in the research on underestimating popular climate support, one of the policies included in there was also a carbon tax, and people do underestimate it dramatically in terms of how popular it really is in the United States. So virtually all the things I've talked about 
can be tied into that kind of a policy. All the approaches I've mentioned are somewhat neutral, at least, towards what you're trying to advocate for. So if you're using dynamic norms, or if you're encouraging people to reflect on why they do things, or if you think you want to correct people's misperceptions about norms, you could try doing all these things for causes beyond the ones I'm mentioning. There are some limitations, though, I think. For instance, people have an intuition, have a pretty strong intuition that things move in liberal directions. If you ask people, like, how do you think X issue is changing? How do you think it was in the 60s versus now? People just assume things are getting more progressive. So it's hard to bend their perception of the future or the direction of change towards something else. Like they tend to not see it that way at default. So you'd have a lot harder of a job. Like dynamic norms as a tool would be slightly harder to use for those ends because people in, intuit that the world, they believe the MLK quote, right? That the world bends towards justice, um, but that you need to be the one bending it to extent, obviously. Uh, and I would think that uh, the the truth of a situation may maybe eventually wins out. So, for instance, it's going to be harder to say, join me in the effort to um, ignore what could be an existential threat to humanity. But we we think it's not really happening. <laughs> That's a harder sell in the end. To an extent, we I, I think that the the sort of war for the narrative around climate change has evolved over time. And the opponents of climate change, they don't have a bulletproof strategy. Exactly. Like they have a lot of advantages. The wind's at their back in terms of it's a hard problem to solve psychologically, like I mentioned, but they've had to change tact over and over again because the old tactics didn't work any longer. They really can only delay. They can't win, frankly. It's like the writing's on the wall and you just can't change that many people for that long. It's very difficult. The question's really like, how long are they going to delay us and how bad are, are we going to let things get? Exactly, exactly. So some of the, the misinformation initially was, of course, just denying climate change. And then they pivoted to, okay, we can't deny climate change. People believe it too much. We, we've lost that fight. But we did delay for a while, which was great from like a profit standpoint. So they pivoted to saying it's not man-made. And then that's stopped working. vast majority of Americans can see the writing on the wall now and understand that it is man-made. And then they go, okay, let's just say that renewable energy is bad. Uh, right? So that's been like one of the more later things but that's also not very persuasive like most americans like really like renewable energy they get the benefits they understand that it's like a it's also like a form of power you can own which is amazing i think what we'll need to end and this is a i think a good optimistic note to end on so thank you so much greg sparkman a professor of social psychology at boston college who directs the social influence and social change lab specializing on issues related to, to climate change thank you so much for coming to to delving in thank you for having me I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.